Kids, Miss Long's over there. She's ready to take out the children's worship. You can join her. So we started a couple of weeks or several weeks ago a series in the book of Ezra, and we're up today to Ezra chapter 4, verses 6 through 13. And as Shang and Kevin have mentioned to you, we're going to talk a bit today about the, the weak people of God coming under attack and opposition and just how that, how that works out. But before we do that, we're going to uh, we're going to do what we just sang, and that is to plead uh, the name of Jesus over what we're about to do here, because without the work of Christ and His Spirit, uh, now uh, what we're about to do is a fruitless exercise. I know that because I wrote the sermon, <laughs> right? So, so. Uh, so trust me uh, when I say, uh, and, and I ask you to join with me before I read the text, that we might uh, plead for uh, Jesus to be at work. So uh, before I read it, let, let's pray. <clears throat> Lord, we um, come to you today uh, as we look into your word, uh, confessing uh, that we are burdened by sin uh, and that we are often swept up uh, by accusations and and Lord, in some ways, even worse than that, we often are the accusers ourselves of our brothers and sisters. Sometimes we look more like the father of lies than we do like the heavenly father. And so as we think through uh, this issue today, particularly at the, the lies and the, uh, uh, the destruction that our enemy would reap uh, uh, in the midst of your people and to knock your, uh, the progress of your kingdom, of course, pray that you would bless us. Jesus, you are victor, you are reigning, and you will reign. And we look forward to that day when uh, all your enemies are uh, below your feet and made your footstool. Pray that you would help us today, uh, help us in hope and energy and perseverance. We ask this in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Amen. So Ezra chapter 4, verses 6 through 13. Uh, it's in the bulletin, also up on the screens behind me. This is the word of God. We should hear it and respond to it as such uh, this morning. Uh, in the reign of Ahasuerus, which is Xerxes, I don't know why they, they translate it this way, but Xerxes, the Persian king, in the beginning of his reign, they, that is the enemies of the people of God, wrote an accusation against the inhabitants of Judah and Jerusalem. In the days of Artaxerxes, Bishlam and Mithridath and Tabeel and the rest of their associates wrote to Artaxerxes, king of Persia. The letter was written in Aramaic and translated, Rahum, the commander, and Shimshai, the scroll, wrote a letter against Jerusalem to Artaxerxes, the king as follows. Rahum, the commander, Shimshai, the scribe, and the rest of their associates, the judges, the governors, the officials, the Persians, the men of Erech, the Babylonians, the men of Susa, that is the Elamites, and the rest of the nations whom the great and noble Osnapor uh, deported and settled in the cities of Samaria and in the rest of the province beyond the river. This is a copy of the letter that they sent. 
to Artaxerxes the king, your servants, the men of the province beyond the river, send greeting. And now be it known to the king that the Jews who came up from you to us have gone to Jerusalem. They are rebuilding that rebellious and wicked city. They are finishing the walls and repairing the foundations. Now be it known to the king that if this city is rebuilt and the walls finished, they will not pay tribute, custom or toll, and the royal revenue will be impaired. So you may be thinking this morning, wow, what does that have to do with anything, right? Who is Shimshai and why should I care, right? Maybe you weren't even listening that much. Um, What what I do want to... tell you today, though, is, is uh, review real quickly for you just what's going on. Because in the passage that we've read here, uh, it may seem like these things are happening very quickly, but it spans almost 100 years. Right? So uh, there's my chart. I'm proud of my chart. Uh, so the, the, if you'll notice, you know, that we, we start here in chapter 4, around 538 B.C., and then uh, Ezra 4.23 uh, is at uh, 4.45. So almost 100 years spans what's going on uh, in this chapter. So Ezra is writing this almost 100 years after what's initially happening there in verses 5 and 6. Now, why is that? And, and why is he doing that? Well, it's for this audience, the audience of those, those people who are experiencing difficulty in rebuilding the walls there at Jerusalem. And so what he's wanting to say to them is, listen, listen, look, for a hundred years almost since our ancestors came and since Cyrus sent the decree and the 42,000 came back to Jerusalem and to Judah, we have been experiencing opposition and difficulty, lies, uh, gossip, uh, all sorts of things about us. And so what he wants is, is this kind of a review of this history to encourage the people who are there, right? Now, what we know is, is that the ultimate, the, the effect of all of this at the end, at the end of chapter 4, is that the work grinds to a stop. Rebuilding the temple, rebuilding the walls, all of those things begin uh, to, uh, to stop. And so um, it is, you know, it's, it's kind of in some ways a very, a very bleak story. But what Ezra is trying to do is to say, don't be caught off guard. Don't be surprised. Since we've been here, there's been opposition, right? So you can, you can take that down now, Brian, and I'll go ahead and put my notes up there. So this tells us something uh, pretty important, and it's this. You can put my notes up. You can't? You can't? Hey, that's who we are. <laughs> right? Don't you love that logo? Is it a cross or a star? Or is it both? Anyway, uh, are we going to get them? Maybe, maybe not. I actually did do it. Okay. Well, let me just tell you. uh, What we're getting at here with, with Ezra writing this is something that's probably a little difficult for us in our particular social historical period that we're in to understand. I don't know if you've been paying attention or not, but there's a debate raging in our culture right now about the meaning of history. You heard about that? Some of you have. And some of you have already decided your view's right. Uh, 
And, you know, uh, depending on where you, you read about this, whether you get it from the New York Times or the Wall Street Journal or MSNBC or CNN or Fox News, you've chosen the correct view of history. And the other people that have a different view of history from you are bad and certainly wrong. Right? That's what's going on. Well, I'm here to unify us this morning to tell you that the view, the conservative view, whatever that is, and the liberal view, whatever that is, they're both wrong. So you have something in common with the person you disagree with. You're both wrong. <laughs> okay? <laughs> because, because there is a view of history uh, that is transcendent over these petty little things that we are, find ourselves in. Did you know that? Yeah. Um, and and uh, uh, it's this, right? That from sometime before Genesis 3 until Jesus comes back and brings the curtain down on history, the story of history is an unremitting, unending war and conflict between God, the seed of the woman, and the seed of the serpent. That's it. That's how the Bible views history. That's the way it works. So all those crazy battles you see in the Old Testament, all of those things that you see going on, those are, are, are tiny little bits and pieces of that conflict. And right now, whether you believe it or not, and I know it's a dangerous thing, and I saw people roll their eyes at the, at the early service, which gets me fired up because I know I'm twanging somebody's last nerve when they roll their eyes at me. It's this. Um, many of us, don't like to hear about conflict, don't like to hear about the fact that there's a, a, a war and in many ways an unseen war uh, because it makes us nervous or it makes us fear discomfort or it makes us think, well, frankly, we, what we'd rather believe is kind of a scientific, mechanistic, materialistic view of the world without understanding that from God's perspective, which really kind of trumps yours and mine, that what's really going on in the world is that this world, since sometime before Genesis 3, there has been a rebellion afoot, and that the king of the universe is about the business through his people, through the life, death, and resurrection of his son, putting that rebellion down and establishing once and for all his rule. That's it. That's the point. That's what's going on. Now, now we, you know, we have our little part to play in it. We come and we go and, and generations come and they go. But the fact is, that is history and that is the direction in which it is moving. And that conflict is the dynamic that's in that history and that we know the end of the story. This is not like Star Wars where there's the force and there's Whatever kind of good, bad, Sith. What's the other one? Jedi. And, you know, they're kind of equal, locked in this. That's hogwash. We know the end of the story. We know who wins. 
Jesus reigns, Jesus is victor. And because we belong to him, we know that's the truth. However, in the midst of this conflict, many of us have checked out because it makes us nervous, makes us uncomfortable. Many of us have given up. We were in the conflict and we were overwhelmed. And many of us are just discouraged. Right? Now, let me, let me be clear here. And you're not, I'm, I'm not going to talk today to make you, you think that there's some kind of uh, demonic spiritual entity under every chair in the room or anything like that. But what I do know about us is that for the most part, most of us don't think about uh, what's actually going on from the Bible's perspective in terms of the conflict that goes on in my own soul as I wrestle with the world, the flesh, and the devil. Uh, we don't pay much attention to what's going on in terms of the kingdom of God advancing because what we give ourselves to is comfort and ease and get along. Smooth. Right? So what we see here is in this passage, and in fact this whole chapter, is Ezra trying to say to people, listen, listen, for a hundred years we've been in conflict. Literally, the story of the Bible is we've been in conflict for millennia. And it will continue until Jesus comes back, right? And so this conflict is something that that we don't like to think a lot about and, and, and sometimes we get off track with it because we think the conflict is, is, a, is a physical con, uh, conflict. But ultimately, for us, it's a spiritual conflict. And it manifests itself in, in our own discouragement uh, and, and the things, the, kind of the self-talk that we do and in the talk that we do about one another and the way in which we kind of mimic um, the accusations of our enemies rather than the life-affirming gospel of Jesus Christ. And so, and then for many of us, we just, you know, life is so good and so easy and so pain-free that word of conflict seems stupid and a kind of obtuse and kind of just out of left field. So as we look at this this morning, I want us to unpack a little bit about how this works, how God is at work in, in this, and how, how uh, uh, the, the strategies and the tactics of our enemy uh, work against us and how we can overcome, right? So one of the things that you have to understand is, is that we are engaged in, in, in a war. And, you know, one of the things that... Um, um, you may think, well, I'm not in a war. Um, well, if you're in Christ today, you are and you have an enemy. And one of the things that um, uh, General Mattis, the guy who was the Secretary of Defense, says that, you know, in any war, you know, you may think it's over, but your enemy always gets a vote <laughs> to say when it's over or not, right? Well, he hasn't said it's over. Right. So um, so we must understand that some wars and some enemies don't offer the option of neutrality or of simply ignoring the conflict. 
Uh, When an enemy wants nothing but your defeat and annihilation, neutrality means choosing death. And neutrality could just be, I just, I'm checked out, right? So the war raging in the unseen world for the souls of human beings is exactly that kind of war. Neutrality and negotiation that is making peace outside of the work of Christ is really not an option on the table, right? So, like I said, ever since Eden, we are participating in a conflict of rebellion, right? Now, we just celebrated Christmas a few uh, weeks and months ago, and one of the things I love, uh, we haven't sent out Christmas cards since we had babies, uh, but I love getting them. And I really love the Renaissance and the Baroque cards that we get with the great pictures of the little Jesus, you know, doing his thing and all of that kind of stuff, right? With a full head of hair and, you know, he looks so dynamic and that sort of thing. And it's really cool. Um, and, you know, the, the, the nativity scenes, the, you know, precious, precious moments, precious memories, precious little clay figures, whatever it is. Uh, well, the Bible has a, has a, a recounting of, uh, uh, the birth of Christ in Revelation. And uh, uh, the text that uh, Lori read earlier in the service, these are the verses that come before that. You didn't know there was a dragon in the Christmas story, did you? Right? And a great sign appeared in heaven, a woman clothed with the sun, with the moon under her feet, and on her head a crown of 12 stars. She was pregnant and was crying out in birth pains in the agony of giving birth. Okay, that sounds like Christmas. And another sign appeared in heaven. Behold, a great red dragon with seven heads and ten horns, and on his heads were seven diadems. His tail swept down a third of the stars of heaven and cast them to the earth. And the dragon stood before the woman who was about to give birth so that when she bore her child, he might devour it. Oh, yikes. That's not in Rudolph, right? So she gave birth to a male child. One who is to rule all the nations with a rod of iron, but her child was caught up to God and to his throne, and the woman fled into the wilderness where she has a place prepared by God in which she is to be nourished for 1,260 days, right? So, so that is a pretty profound picture to us of, of the way a, the, the curtain gets pulled back a little bit on those events there in, in Bethlehem and Jerusalem with, with Jesus and his birth and, and Herod and, and all of those things that are going on there, right? There's, there's a little window for us to look in there to see what's, what's actually going on kind of in an unseen way, right? And, and so the, the, the fact of the matter is that, that is an interpretation of and a view of for us of how God sees this conflict that's ongoing around us, in us, and through us, right? And so Ezra is just trying to wake these people up to the fact that wherever the kingdom of God is advancing, wherever the purpose of God is at work, wherever Jesus is being proclaimed, wherever his work is happening, there's going to be opposition. And in fact, you know, that when we read the Bible, the Bible is, is nothing but a record of conflict. And you may be thinking, I, I read all that stuff in the Old Testament and I, and I see all those battles and all those crazy things. I get that. But you don't see that in the New Testament. Absolutely you do. In fact, the conflict intensifies in the New Testament. Jesus confronts evil almost in every chapter of the Gospels. 
He confronts the not only the, the unseen spiritual evil, but he, but he confronts the evil in people's hearts and, and in people's, uh, uh, you know, and, and it, it, it's, it's everywhere, right? And we see that the, uh, the church, as it goes forward, there's martyrs, there's uh, resistance. Uh, the proclaimers of the gospel are locked away in prison and beaten, right? And so as, as, you, as, you, as we think about that, as, as you unpack that, the, the fact of the matter is this conflict uh, is uh, ongoing and uh, it hasn't let up, right? So how would we know, how would you and I know uh, that we're in the conflict and how would we know that uh, uh, what, what to do about it? Well, the first thing that you note about this is so the enemies of God's people first begin to insinuate themselves into the into the purpose that the people are, 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 are into God's people. Remember, we looked at last week, the enemies of God's people come to them and say, hey, we'll help you. You know, we worship the same God, not really, but, you know, we'll help you. And when the people of God had, you know, a little stiff backbone and said, no, 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 you know, we're we understand God's purpose and we are going to bring it to completion. We don't want your help. Immediately, they begin to resist it. Right. And so as we finished last week, what we noted was at the very end of chapter four, what happened? They quit. Right. So what we're going to see in this text and what we see today is the tactics that these enemies use to get the people to quit. What is it? They write letters, they accuse, they gossip, and they slander, right? So they write these letters to the kings and the administrators there in Persia and say, hey, do you know these wretched Jews, if you let them do what they want to do, then they will only get stronger and they will not pay your taxes, now, you have to understand the context of that. There, 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 there's, some, there's, there's a reason why they make that accusation. And the reason why they make that accusation is the very reason why these people were deported, why the Babylonians came and deported them, was Babylon had come some years earlier before they deported the whole nation and put them uh, uh, basically under their own kind of thumb and said, you're going to pay us taxes. And they refused to pay taxes, and that's when... Trouble came, right? So they, they have a history of doing that. There's a bit of truth here. It, 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 there's certainly a possibility that these people might not do this. But so far, up until this point in time, they've done exactly what uh, they were supposed to do as far as the Persians were concerned. So I just thought a minute, and I'm like, well, how much money are we talking about, right? Uh, so I did a little bit of, of, of research. So historians estimate that the Persians collected between 170 and $300 million a year just in taxes from their provinces in, in today's money. And it's estimated that the province of Judah paid about $4 million a year. Not very much. And I don't know what the math is on that, but that's, that's not very much. So why would this get... Uh, noticed by the, the king in Persia. Well, the reason why it will get noticed by the king in Persia is if you let the Jews not pay their taxes, pretty soon other people aren't going to be paying their taxes either. And pretty soon you've got a full-born you know, uh, rebellion on your hands. What are you going to do, right? 
So money's not what is at issue here, so much as sovereignty and political control. And these people can't stand it that the people of God, the 40,000 or so that have returned there, are actually rebuilding the temple, reestablishing Jerusalem, reestablishing a place where God can fulfill his work, where he can bring his Messiah into the world, right? And so they can't stand the thought of that. And so they begin to accuse and they begin to write these slanderous things about the people of God that are right there, right? So what happens? Well, these lies and deception lead to fear and to discouragement. They quit. They quit. They quit. How is it possible that a lie is so powerful? We think, I think, I know the truth. I understand. I see what's happening here. I would never believe a lie. But the fact is, we are in the fix we're in. We are in... We die. Death has a firm hold on this world because our first parents believed a lie. They believed a lie. And that lie had such a profound effect. So the truth is we uh, we often, we, we give ourselves over to believing lies all the time. God doesn't love you. The gospel's not true. Jesus didn't uh, uh, rise from the dead. How can you believe that God can forgive you for that sin again? How could you believe that God's that good? He's not that good. Look, you know, this, this, this trial that you're experiencing, this difficulty that you're experiencing, that proves that God doesn't love you or it proves that there is no God, right? So, so the fact is these, these, these enemies are giving lies and it discourages the people. It makes them afraid and they quit. The same thing happens to us, doesn't it? That what happens to us is we hear those lies, we see those things, and there may even be a kernel of truth there. Did I sin? You bet. Uh, I love that line that we sang earlier uh, uh, in, in, in the worship service, bowed down beneath a load of sin by Satan sorely pressed. Those two things go together. It's not like you can say, oh, no, I'm good, I'm perfect, I haven't done anything wrong. No, you're a sinner. It's true. It's true, right? So the fact is, what we need, what I need, what you need, is someone to come alongside of us and remind us of the truth that Jesus Christ lived, that he died, that he rose again, that God is for us, that he has a purpose, that he loves us, that he is with us, that he has given us his spirit, that we belong to him, and he belongs to us. Here's the thing. I need you and you need others when you are tempted to believe lies and you do it all the time. Uh, maybe you're believing the lie today that your worth and your value is bound up in something that you own or something that you're related to. Whatever it is, you need somebody to come alongside you to say, hey, listen, you know what? Here's the truth. The truth is... <laughs> That, that God sees you, that he is for you. And these outward, these circumstantial things are, are, are paltry compared to the giant work that God has done and is doing through Jesus Christ in you, right? 
So we need one another to remind each other of the truth. And that's one of the things that leaps off the page at me in this chapter is this. There's a resounding silence from godly leadership in this passage. There's nobody standing up and saying, hey, wait a minute. God has promised to restore his people. God has promised to rebuild the temple. God has promised to to rebuild Jerusalem. We we can have courage. We can trust him. We can take this step because our God is good. Look, he has delivered us. He has brought us back. The prophetic word that Isaiah and Jeremiah said, it's coming true right before our very eyes. Why isn't somebody standing up and saying that? I don't know. But for a hundred years, it seems like there's almost no shepherding, human shepherding of the people of God. Now, now God's at work, but for a hundred years here, the work of God is hindered and all and grinds to a halt simply because there's no one to stand up and say, hey, Jesus is for real. This gospel is true. This God is for us and he loves us and he has a purpose. He has a kingdom and it's advancing. You know, sometimes we, we don't lead like that because we think leadership is, is this big, complicated thing. In 1904, 1905, I think it is, anyway, the earlier part of, of the last century, um, one of the darkest, hardest, roughest places on the planet was the coal mining region uh, in Wales. Uh, uh, alcoholism, spousal abuse, child abuse, uh, just horrible, horrible, horrible conditions. Um, and there is a tradition in Wales of, of some churches there. Uh, there's a tiny church. I forget the name of the town. If I could remember it, I couldn't pronounce it anyway because Wales is unpronounceable. Welch is unpronounceable language, but... Uh, a little 13-year-old girl stands up in the middle of the church service just like this and says, I love the Lord Jesus with all my heart. That's all she does. And you think, really? Where were the smoke machines? Where were the spotlights? Where were the amps? <laughs> Where was the cool music? Where were the cool things? Revival breaks out. Revival breaks out and sweeps the countryside. Pubs shut down. Churches fill up. Ponies don't know how to pull the carts anymore because they only respond to cursing. There's no one apparently, with the courage to stand in the midst of this discouraged and beaten down people and say, our God reigns. The day will come, and ultimately, uh, the, the temple will be rebuilt, and Jerusalem will be rebuilt. But here's a very bleak period here of silence, discouragement, and fear among the people of God. So what's going to help us to overcome? Well, we read it. Shang, uh, Lori read it to us earlier. We read about the people, the saints of God, who overcome by the blood of the Lamb and the word of their testimony. 
We are a redeemed people. We are a people who has been purchased at great cost. We are a people for whom blood has been shed. That is our identity. That is who we are. That is our claim. That is our soul claim. But that claim is so strong and so powerful. It determines who we are and it even determines where we're going, right? And so when I am lied about, when I am accused, when I am undone, when I am tempted to make your opinion of me more important, (laughs) make your lies and your accusations bigger to me than the truth of the gospel, I must remember the lamb who was slain. That all of my sins, full atonement has been made, and that's my claim. And secondly, we need a word of testimony. We need to hear and we need to speak to one another this truth. There is so much rampant discouragement, not just discouragement among the people of God, but what I call unencourageableness. And when you run into that, what I need is somebody to come and put their hand on my shoulder and say, Jesus reigns. The cross still counts. The tomb is still empty. The spirit has been poured out. And the gospel is true. You see, those things, those simple things are the things that God gives us to overcome these powerful weapons of lies and deception and fear and discouragement. Maybe today, you know, maybe today we are so wrapped up, so concerned about our own comfort and our own ease uh, that we basically are unaware or checked out of the conflict. Well, the truth is the edge, the leading edge, the front edge of what Jesus is doing in the hearts and minds of people today and in this kingdom, rest assured, if you're feeling resistance, if you're feeling uh, difficulty and challenge, then perhaps you are exactly where Jesus wants you. Perhaps you are exactly where the gospel is most needed and the work of God is most powerful. Don't let a little discomfort and a little accusation knock you off course. Hear these words of institution this morning for the Lord's Supper. The disciples prepared the Passover And when it was evening, Jesus came with the twelve, and they were reclining at the table. And as they were eating, he took bread, and after blessing it, he broke it and gave it to them and said, Take, this is my body. And he took a cup, and when he had given thanks, he gave it to them, and they all drank of it. And he said to them, This is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many. Truly I say to you, I will not drink again of the fruit of the vine until that day when I drink it new in the kingdom of God. Let's use this prayer of confession. Uh, It's in the bulletin and on the screen uh, behind me to confess our sins. Holy God, we are guilty of rejecting your commands, of doubting your promises, of proud self-reliance, of neglect to rest in you. 
Daily we fail to love you and our neighbor as we ought. We praise you for providing the Savior in Jesus who takes our sin and gives us his righteousness. Lord, continue the work of salvation in us. Conquer our weakness with your strength. Blot out our self-centeredness with your glory. Meet us in our suffering and disappointments. Refine us as you see fit. Keep us from returning to sin's bondage. Brighten our hearts with your grace. Redirect our desires so that we may delight deeply in you. Amen. Believer, hear these words of encouragement. At just the right time, when we were still powerless, Christ died for the ungodly. God demonstrates his own love for us in this. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. On the night in which he was betrayed, the Lord Jesus took bread and he broke it, just as I do now, ministering in his name, and he gave it to his disciples. So it's been, uh, I think now, almost two years since we uh, made uh, the decision and uh, redirected our worship service to include uh, the Lord's Supper every time we gather. And uh, I'm really uh, glad that we did that, um, and, I, and I'll, I'll tell you why. Um, an occupational hazard that uh, people in, in my position have is, uh, um, well, Saturday nights are always very restless uh, nights. Not because of, uh, well, I'll tell you why. I'll tell you why they're restless for me. Um, it's because I am terrified that I will stand before you on Sunday mornings and forget Jesus. Now, you may be thinking, how in the world is that possible? Well, I can tell you how it's possible. Because I forget him all the time. (laughs) Right? And so I'm horrified to think, oh, God, what what might happen if I get up there and I do this thing and I forget about you? I forget about the cross. I forget about the resurrection. I forget about the... uh, I, I forget. And so one of the great things for me is uh, that helps me is to know, well, I might blow it and I might forget, but I know for certain that when I get behind this table and I hold up this bread and I hold up this cup, we have the word of God that tells us we are proclaiming the Lord's death until he comes. And so whatever else may be going on, and trust me, I, when I look out into this congregation on Sunday mornings, it's amazing the stuff going on in here. But uh, whatever, else may, whatever else may be going on, that is true. 
And we have an opportunity to proclaim to ourselves, to one another, to the angels, to the demons, to the devil himself. We proclaim the Lord's death, full atonement for sin. This is who we are. But while we were sinners, Christ died for me. And so I have an opportunity to take this bread and uh, drink this cup and be nourished and restored and re-reminded of what my identity is and what my destiny is in Jesus Christ. And so if you have hope this morning that is rooted in this Christ who died for you, if you have hope this morning as you are overwhelmed that you might overcome because he has overcome, because he has shed his blood and he has given you the word of his testimony of his work for you, then Jesus says to you today, listen, beleaguered, discouraged, checked out, cold people, wake up. The gospel's still true. Jesus died. We proclaim his death. Sin has no power. Jesus reigns, and every eye will see it and proclaim him Lord. That's our hope. It's a blessed hope. If you, that's your hope today, and you proclaim that to a body of believers somewhere, this Jesus sets this table and tells you to come, to eat, to drink, to proclaim his death, to commune with him, to commune with your brothers and sisters, and to claim the blood of Christ over your guilty conscience. That's what we get to do every week. That's our hope. That's your hope. As the elders and deacons come down this morning to uh, assist me, let me remind you the outer ring is wine, the inner rings are grape juice, all the bread uh, is bread uh, that is uh, gluten-free.